Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice, head on over to beenawake.com, subscribe with your email address so we can keep the conversation going. It's kind of what I'm about, right? Conversations, trying to have good ones of those. This is episode 66. Right now, I have my own little uh, jerry-rigged multi-streaming set. We are live on YouTube. I'm also live in Twitter spaces where I'm going to try and take some questions in a little bit. It's been a while been a little bit since I've done a solo episode. So we've got some articles to kind of catch up on if that's something you're interested in and you're listening to this. So I have to assume you are, unless you're hate listening, in which case I really appreciate you. I really appreciate the haters. Um, I'm trying to attract more of them. I've been taking some shots online, a little bit of beef, right? A little bit of beef for the people. We go on to social media for, uh, uh, for entertainment. You understand? So sometimes I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of realizing that maybe how do you walk the line between being a nuanced and critical, like, you know, thinker, and then also doing something that's entertainment and something that people can kind of not necessarily sink their teeth into, but enjoy the performance of. So we're going to get a, we're going to get into a little bit of that today on the show. Um, We might, if you're watching on YouTube, I might not put anything up on the screen, just given the, uh, just given where it's at, but I do have, let's see, sorry, a little bit out of practice with this bad boy. I want to talk through articles. I'm sitting at home, so I'm trying to use this cool little setup that I made, but I forgot to click the right tab <laughs> to start off on. Um, all right, here we go. Sorry for the preamble, unnecessary preamble. So there's a couple of news stories that I did write about on Been Awake that I, I, I talked about in some places, but I didn't necessarily talk about in like a full on episode of the show. So what I'm going to do to kind of lead up into our conversation about agorism and why I purposefully triggered the agorists recently, I am going to um, begin by, you know, kind of covering some news stories that maybe you've heard of. We're just going to kind of walk through these pretty quickly, I would say. Uh, if for no other reason than some of this stuff has already been uh, talked about, right? And we've already discussed some of the ideas at play in these stories. But one of them was, which is interestingly enough, right? Because I wrote this piece on October 14th and I'm speaking to you on November the 28th. Anybody remember the last time they heard about this Gabby Petito story? Which is kind of, <laughs> this is kind of a silly place to start really. Um, but it's, it's where we're going to. Because there's always a little nugget, even when I do shorter news bites that don't really have a lot of substance, there is certainly, there are certainly rather little nuggets inside of them that I think you should be aware of. So obviously, let, let, let me, let's get out, let's get out a qualifier, shall we? Obviously, when someone is murdered, it's a tragedy. It's, oh, it's a tragedy when somebody is murdered for the family and the friends of the victim. And unfortunately, just in case, for whatever reason, a member of the Petito family listens to this podcast, even though it's not going to be the focus, just in case somebody listens, please, I hope they understand that I under that I that I can understand that they are you know feeling the effects of a tragedy, even if even if my analysis comes off as callous. So, Gabby, this this Gabby Petito story, eh? Is um, we're going to press an extra record just to be on the safe side. This Gabby Petito story really took over the news cycle in October, and it's kind of interesting now when I, when I want to even bring it up to cover it, because I guess I have to remind people what was going on. And of course, a, an attractive young, and in, in the, as, the case, as the case happened to be white girl, was killed, at least apparently, and allegedly by her boyfriend. Uh, as far as I understand it now, they found remains that, that they think are the boyfriends. So he, he might be out of the equation or did they arrest him? I don't really know. And isn't that interesting that a story that took up so much time on the airwaves, you don't, you know, I don't really have a, I don't really have a clear, I don't have a clear ending to the story. 
And part of that's because I'm not super interested in a story like this, and I kind of want to get into why. I think, unfortunately, for the Petito family, Gabby's story caught the attention of the corporate press, right, of the kingmakers in, uh, of the people who want to feed you reality. There, I think there's something about what I wrote was apparently stories like this are delicious feed for the, for the herd of humanity. I think that's accurate, right? This is this idea of us obsessing over a kidnapping and potential killing of a young woman in many cases it is a recurring news cycle, right? You can kind of go back in there. There have been famous cases largely spurred by the power wielded by the 24 hour news cycle found on cable news that kind of have people focusing a lot on a story like this and, and people seem to eat it up, right? It kind of has, it has all the interesting things that aren't happening in your life, right? So if you're somebody who sits on the couch and you want to consume the information that way, you, um, you can follow a story like this and feel excited, feel devastated, feel alive, you know, just by the nature of focusing on somebody else's death. What's interesting about a story like this in 2021 is how it even provides a counter narrative for the race obsessed in, in our society, in the cult of American democracy. See, while on the one hand, an outlet like CNN can actually sit and talk about, oh, I don't know why it's so awful that this girl is missing. And then they can have another person on talking about how it's awful that, you know, we don't pay this much attention when a black girl goes missing. If you're a listener to the show, you know, you know that I think racism and I, I posit that racism is a method of social control. What that means is that when somebody is pulling the racial strings, you should pay attention to see how you are being manipulated. The reality is, right? This is this is what this is what they this is the context they won't give you in a store, or maybe they do, but it's somebody you know doing a five-minute spot, right? And 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 that's countered by the fact that they're going to, you know, there was a point in time where they were focusing on the parents of her uh, you know, former boyfriend, um, you know, alleged alleged killer. They were, they were focusing on just news coverage of, of his parents' house, of, of the dude's parents' house, right? Because this guy went missing in the woods. The reality is you don't care when most people go missing. And the follow-up to that is the reality is the press doesn't care when most people go missing. There's a few things that make this case different, but I think you know, looking for the easiest explanation is always worthwhile. We don't need to reach for this tired trope of racism in America, right? Because again, you know, like if you just want to look at the demographics, it kind of makes sense that given the, given the demographics of the U.S., more people for a sample size of 350 million are going to be interested perhaps in a story like this than in, you know, a story with less, uh, a story with somebody with a different racial makeup. But of course, again, why, why are we looking at the story? And this was the thing that I tried to hone in on. I think part of the reason is that there was plenty of footage, right? This was somebody, she was somebody who was living her life online and she was documenting that across social media. And so she garnered enough of a following to warrant when, so when, when things changed that people thought that you know they should look for her. My, my opinion was to pay attention to the story if you want to be lobotomized, and I will, I'll, hold, I'll hold on to that opinion so we won't spend too much more time on it. Just, I just wanted to hit that point, though, as it relates to stories like this. You know, well, to the specific, to the specific racial div division, I would say, well, maybe it's because she had more pictures on her Instagram, and she had cultivated a following already, too. Again, we don't need to get into the specifics. So between the last time I did a solo episode and now, Colin Powell passed away. He passed away at 84 years old. I guess he had had some form of cancer. Um, we could get into a little bit of his legacy, which, you know, really his legacy is marred by the fact that he sold the Iraq war to the American people in front of the U.N. And, and really the world in front of the U.N., um, but if I'm being honest, as the story has kind of faded away from the news cycle, I'm not super interested. I'm only, I only will point out quickly that he had cancer. Um, but what was interesting is that his family mentioned that he was fully vaccinated during it, which is just kind of this weird, like 
news story that kind of played out. So, but he had cancer, right? And he was 84 years old. So again, there's just this kind of reminder of how the world has always worked, which is those who are older are always going to be, uh, are always going to be more susceptible to disease. And, you know, and that's, well, again, that's sad for the family. We have to try and put things in the appropriate context. So going through, we're just uh, going through, I did, there was an anti-war debate held in New York City a few, about a month ago. Um, and this is, we're just going to read through briefly what I wrote about it, and then we're going to move on. There is a place for academic debate within society. Now, the word debate is overhyped by media outlets vying for your attention. The Soho Forum, on the other hand, is a formal Oxford-style, legi- I would argue, legitimate debate series hosted by Gene Epstein and the Reason Foundation. The resolution of this particular debate read, a willingness to intervene and to seek regime change is key to an American foreign policy that benefits America. On the pro side was Bill Kristol, who was a founder of the now defunct Weekly Standard publication, and at the beginning of the 21st century was a supporter of regime change in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. On the con side was Scott Horton, who is the managing editor of antiwar.com and the founder of the Libertarian Institute. Horton has an encyclopedic knowledge of every misstep in American foreign policy. You might say his career has largely been shaped by the wars Crystal supported. So talk about a clash. To the specifics of the resolution, I would find myself in the camp arguing against. This is to say I do not look at the terror wars of the 21st century as a net benefit for the United States. Given that more Americans disagree with the terror wars today, I was curious how Crystal would overcome his opponent. While there was a certain humanity to his arguments, he mostly relied upon platitudes and appeals to a belief in regime change, right? And that that belief in regime change, that faith, as I would argue, that the United States can create the world in their own image, no longer holds currency. And certainly it didn't hold currency in the audience, in, in the audience, um, that 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 was at the Soho Forum, right? The Soho Forum, generally speaking, caters to topics of interest to libertarians, and so libertarians are almost all, uh, almost all, oppose the foreign interventions, especially those in the Middle East, especially those of the terror war. So it wasn't really a, uh, it wasn't really a friendly audience for someone like Crystal. Horton, on the other hand. He delivered his usual barrage of facts and names with the narrative he has crafted over a career. Both men employed rhetoric, but Crystal didn't come ready or willing to fight, which was kind of interesting to me. And it and it and it was, you know, I wish it could have been, I wish it could have been more than it was, given that, given that fact. Given the crowd, Horton's victory was a likely outcome, but he did deliver a stellar performance and his opening marks should be reproduced, which he did. So you can find that in the piece I linked to his opening remarks. You can also watch the video, of course, on Reason's YouTube page, uh, which, again, if you if you have any interest in kind of if 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 the war, foreign wars are never something that you've looked at. Right. And for and it's and I know it's shocking for some to hear, but some Americans just don't think that deeply about the the effects of the war on terror or or if they do they spend a very short period of time looking at it right and and it's just kind of like oh yeah the wars are bad i don't want to i don't i don't want to get more into that i don't want to kind of discover just how bad they might be so it's 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 of interest i think it's worth it's definitely worth your time to take a look at um, hopefully you've already checked it out given that the story is a little bit old, but if not, I'd highly recommend you check it out. It's at least worth listening to, um, some of like the opening statements, I would say. So this next piece that we're going to talk about is how you take your medicine when forced. That's the headline. So we're going to talk about pronouns. I know it's very 2017 of me, this, the piece that I wrote and, you know, this commentary around it, it was spurred by a conversation I had where someone expressed the sentiment as it related to like, you know, personal pronouns, it just doesn't bother me. And gosh, if that isn't just a fair thing to say, I do, I would agree. And I would, I would, I'm curious if you do too, if you agree that it's fair to say someone's pronouns are not something that should bother you. I think that's kind of, again, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's leave that. Let's, let's put a pin in that and we're, we're going to come back to it. So as you know, as a practicing skeptic, I begin from a presumption of doubt. It's the reverse of what our brains are programmed to do. 
our brains are programmed to begin from a position of knowledge. Let's assume, so, so, so our brains are, so I'm going to start from a position of doubt, but our brains are programmed to, to go from a position of knowledge, which, which is relevant to this conversation. So let's assume that one can have their own pronouns, which I don't actually agree with on a like grammatical level, but for the sake of an argument, we're going to walk through an exercise together of exploring this idea. And therefore, so let's assume that one can have their quote unquote own pronouns. And therefore one person can choose their pronouns to reflect some part of their identity. Certainly many people have accepted the premise that quote, this is the way people feel. And therefore it is worthy of some respect. See those people who think that this is just the way some people feel and therefore it is worthy of respect start from a position of not this position of knowledge when they enter a conversation the liberal in the in the in, in the appropriate sense of that term right of and pertaining to free and open society the liberal notion the uncorrupted liberal notion of that idea is is where people are starting from as a position of knowledge that in general if somebody feels a certain way it should be respected because what 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 impact does it really have on me and to what to what extent should i disagree with something that is you know somebody's choice it seems reasonable to assert when faced with an opposing argument to pronouns being singular right so i disagree that pronouns are singular and 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 to be precise right there that's why they're that's why they're pronouns right that's why they're called third person pronouns it is they're not designed to be a unique indicator grammatically speaking so we're doing something more with them or rather not we but the progressive worldview, right? This, this social justice milieu has created this introduction of pronouns such that people to whom pronouns should not be in dispute and aren't in dispute are still posted, right? It's still, it's still the case that a lot of people are encouraged at a corporate level to put their, you know, quote, put your pronouns in your body as if, as if pronouns are something we should think about, right? Again, this is so I, I take exception to that, but we're going to try and move down the pit. We're going to try and move down the logic chain a little bit to address some of the arguments. So when somebody comes to you as you, the, the well-intentioned, well-meaning person, as somebody comes to you and says, yeah, you know, I just, I just don't like, I just don't think people should be able to, right? <laughs> I just don't think people actually have the capacity to choose their pronouns given, given, this, given what language is. It seems pretty fair if you already accept the idea that pronouns could be singular to say that it doesn't really bother you. One question, but, but there's one question that people like that, sorry, we're kind of bouncing around. One question left presupposed with the argument asks, why is this being done? Right. So you start from a position of knowledge, which says, I already know why this is being done. And because in general, it is good to assume that if something matters to somebody, I should respect that. You understand? Because you, you already assume you know why it's being done. Oh, it's just a matter of respect. You actually beg the question in a technical sense. Now, there are many forces at play in this kind of story. But again, I just kind of want to dive a little bit deeper and ask the question, why why has the left, why have progressives, why has the social justice movement, the intersectionality movement, whatever variation you want to use to get at the heart of it, why have, why, why did they make pronouns a cultural symbol to begin with? Again, sometimes I think the right question is better than a good answer. So we're going to spend some time exploring that. So let's not get lost in the garnish. Let's return to the meat of the issue. As it relates to the matter of people who are transgendered, the question of pronouns seems fairly resolvable. Provided one looks like a man, it is fair to ascribe masculine pronouns, and provided one looks like a woman, feminine ones. As it stands in American culture, certainly today, this has been expanded beyond this narrow control. Pronouns are now considered a formal declaration one should make. This is to say it's become a symbol and dare I say a fashion statement to indicate, to indicate one's pronouns. 
So why bother making pronouns a cultural symbol to begin with? We return to the question. I think in part, it's because nobody cared about pronouns and because most people won't care now. Those who do, those who are going to care so much about pronouns one way or the other are going to fall into polls, right? They're going to fall into the categories that are, well, as we might say, the, the, the most uh, dangerous versions of it, not the da dangerous, danger is the wrong word here, it falls into the polls, right? The most extreme reactions. So the people who are going to care, the people who are going to fight it out are the people who just care so much, either in instituting this like primacy of pronouns, which is again, ironic because pronouns are not by design, a unique identifier in any, as far as I understand it in any, uh, in, in any culture. Right. So like, even even in like with salutations, we might look at this because like a salutation is Mr., Mrs., uh, doctor, so on, so on and so forth. Nurse, right? That's that's considered a salutation, at least. So so the forms I fill out say. Even even your, you know, your salutation is is a generalizer, right? Mr., Mrs., Miss, doctor. Again, we can understand that they're they're meant to be generalizations. It is not meant to be the unique identifier that is your full name, right? Because even your name, right? Like there, I'm, I'm sure there are some LBs out there in the world. Certainly my, you know, my given name, there are multiple people with the same name. And that tends to be the case for most names out there, right? You know, there are plenty of Johns in the world. There are plenty, there are plenty of Peters in the world as the case may be. And, you know, and then there are variations, right? Cause you have Johns, but then you also have Wands. And of course, those names mean the same. So what is it that makes you unique? Right? It's in part of your name. So we don't, we don't even expect our names to really be unique in the grand scheme of things. I would say it's because no one cared before. Again, as I say, and most people don't bother to now. Those who, those who do care will tend to fall into polemics in either direction and feed the beast that is the cult of American democracy. We see this in the way that the boomers react to something like this. And of course, the millennials and the Gen Zers who are just trying to be the best person they can. When we're, when we're dealing with population level ideas, we have to take into account the existence of an in-group and the out-group. If everyone is participating in an innocuous symbol, declaring pronouns in an introduction, a bio, or an email signature, it pays to participate. That's the in-group. That's in-group reinforcement. The reinforcement, right, and, and, and the purpose of it, though, I don't think comes in the praise that you get from having your pronouns in your bio, but in the punishment. When one accepts the word of progress into their hearts, right, the social gospel movement promulgated by progressives, when one accepts the word of progress into their heart and believes in the sacred symbol of the pronoun, they must abide by the symbol and never stray. That is to say, it is something taken on faith. In other words, when you agree to call Kelly they because they asked you to and you mistakenly call them she because that's how you've always referred to your friend Kelly, you're a sinner. It's not about reason. It's about control. And that's why you bother making pronouns a cultural symbol to begin with. See, that's the question I was trying to answer in my mind is why, why are we even, why am I even having this discussion with this person over something that should be so innocuous as, as, as to be pronouns, right? But that's, that's when I realized it has far less to do, has far less to do with the fact that people are going to respect your pronouns and far more to do with the fact that you can correct people when they don't. And to the, to the true believer that they feel less than when they make that mistake. If you go onto the libs of TikTok uh, Twitter page, eventually, if you scroll through, you can find a video kind of backing this up where there is a um, uh, alleged non-binary teacher who was upset that a gender fluid student, that she accidentally called a gender fluid student in their class they on a day where the, that gender fluid student wanted to call themselves she or some variation thereupon. Don't you again see how with these non-descriptors that aren't meant to point out somebody specific or rather not individuate, right? Because we can use he to reference like somebody over there with a point, but it's not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really represent somebody specific. Now in this, 
in this revolt reversion no revulsion in this usurpation of a very virtuous impulse of you know what i'm just going to kind of respect what somebody else believes because in turn they're going to provide me respect this sort of thing can hijack this 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 sort of business with the pronouns has hijacked that virtuous impulse and led us to the place we are today where you know you're kind of considered rude if you wouldn't respect somebody's pronouns or again to the point not put them in your email bio uh, I definitely address this next story, so I don't want to spend too much long, too much longer with it. But apparently, Trump is launching a, a thing, uh, a social media network, um, where you get to go and you get to go in, you get to go and say your truth, which is just ironic, given given the given you know that, but just the way people conceive of truth and how we talk about truth on the show, right? It's like, oh, we're just basically going to create a little walled garden for boomer cons to go to. So I don't know. Still, I don't think that's launched yet. We'll see how it goes. Um, really quick, we're just going to go through, if you missed it, just in case you did, episode 63, Become Effable with Roth Birdian or Nonconforming Patriotism, a really interesting conversation with a very lovely young woman from the East Coast. Episode 64 was Leaving Your Homeland with James Guzman, which you can check out his stuff at borderlessblog.com. Had a really good time talking to both of them with, with Roth Birdian. We, we really spoke more about kind of like men and women, some of the stuff that you deal with if you're kind of like this Twitter bean, as the case may be, and just kind of how people are dumb online. Um, with James, we had a far more, we had a, a far different conversation. We kind of talked about like, what does it look like to leave your homeland? You know, is the country that you're born in, namely for me, right? The United States of America, is that the best place for me to spend the rest of my life? So I'd highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and then if you if you weren't kind of paying attention, you might have missed a couple of uh, other episodes from the feed that I'm not counting as like episodes of the show. But I did do a reaction to the Dave Chappelle special, which you can check out. And then I did I kind of like tested this thing of like your daily news where I was going to do a daily news show. And I still want to do something like that. But I'm, I, I realized I just don't have the daily um, I don't I can't fit that into my daily routine as the case may be. So if you want to make that different, if you want to make that change happen to where I do something like a daily news show, all you got to do is go over binawake.com slash subscribe, let your friends know about the show and subscribe for, uh, you know, to, to let me know that you would enjoy something like that. And let me, and tell me that the other piece I did, and, and I'm purposefully pushing this to where it is, and we're just going to kind of blow into a conversation of agorism was an unmoderated nap or non-aggression principle de principle debate I had with a liquid Zulu. And again, that's somebody's, that's somebody's screen name. I don't know his real name. Um, you can go, I don't, I, I don't really want to play a clip per se. So we're just going to kind of go through this. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of how I decided to intro the show. So our basic resolution read, the executive orders passed by Governor Abbott in Texas banning vaccine mandates for any entity is equally as oppressive as the executive orders issued by President Biden requiring vaccine mandates for businesses with more than 100 workers. Now, I took the negative. He took the positive in this debate. What follow? We also agreed to use the following definition for the non-aggression principle, which is, quote, the uh, is an ethical stance which asserts that aggression is inherently illegitimate. Aggression is defined as the initiation of force against persons or property, the threat of such, or fraud upon persons or their property. In contrast to pacifism, the non-aggression principle does not preclude violent self-defense. This principle is deontological or a rule-based ethical stance. It didn't go well. And it didn't go well in part because him and I had conflicting epistemic frames, which is what we're going to kind of get into in this conversation of how I triggered the, anarch uh, the anarchists, the agorists. But I guess I repeat myself. So in the debate, Liquid Zulu was incredibly concerned with this idea of law. But of course, he had a definition of law that didn't comport to any common or popular definition of law. For the specifics of the debate, I was happy to use his definition of law, but really he wanted to have a conversation about morality because in his mind, what is moral is the law because he claims to, uphold, to, to subscribe to a natural law. I wanted the debate to be more formal with a moderator 
because I knew that we were going to get into the kinds of conversations that we did. I, the guy basically, I thought I did, I thought I actually didn't do very well. And then I listened back and realized the guy was just trying to berate, like he was just trying to beat me over the head, rhetorically speaking. Right. He was, he said he syllogized me at one point. And if you don't know what a syllogism is, a syllogism is just, is, is like a logical statement. Right. So if a, then B, and so if, if B then C, so therefore if A then C, that's kind of, a, that's, that's one, that's one iteration of it, we might say. But of course, syllogisms in and of themselves are very, very useful, but only for very basic levels of thought, right? You need to start with the syllogisms so you can move on to the more complicated analysis, to the more relativistic analysis, because anything that's complicated gets into varying degrees of relativism. What's my evidence for this? Why the field of economics, of course. Because the field of economics, unlike the field of physics, deals far more with relative, you know, relative or we might say qualitative statements. So because Liquid Zulu was unprepared to have anything else beyond a conversation between the natural law and positivism, he completely misunderstood my point. He completely, he, he didn't bother addressing my ideas at all. And it basically was just like an hour of us going back and forth, disagreeing over what the law means. Again, you know, I, I can understand specific definitions, but that doesn't mean that we can't we have we can't come to a consensus. And if the world, if the world is supposed to see the reason why you're a natural law theorist, right, or if you you believe in the natural law, is because you believe it represents a higher order than the order of man. We can just use that very simply, you know, given given the secularness of our age, given the materialism of our day, some people would choose to remove God from the conception of natural law. But historically speaking, the idea of God is required for natural law. And of course, the natural law is something that has always existed, right? We just maybe didn't call it that, right? There, Or, or rather, it's, it has always existed in the minds of the people who would ascribe to it. But also, what is law from the king was always considered to be natural for, for a long part of human history. Certainly, if we go back before Christendom, this was the case. Uh, if you read Hegel and you understand the basics of his dialectic, he actually begins with this, where he talks about how you know the law of the king is supposed to uphold the law of the gods. And part of the early, one of the earliest dialectics occurred when the rule, the will of the king was different than the rule of the gods. So if you're, an, if you're a libertarian and you're interested in a debate about the non-aggression principle, I would recommend you check that out. I think you will see why I am moving the direction I am in as it relates to libertarianism when you listen to something like that. So I want to, this is a little piece that I wrote, I'm going to kind of expound upon it. So I bemoan, if you haven't been able to tell by now, I bemoan, I don't like the term conspiracy theorist and the degree to which somebody would choose that as an identity. I disagree with, like, I don't, I don't make that any part of my identity. Now, just because I said that doesn't mean that conspiracies haven't existed in the past. Right. And, you know, we can say that the, that the founding of the Amer of the United States of America, the American constitution was something of a conspiracy. The articles of confederation were of course the ruling, the ruling, uh, the ruling body where it was the ruling document of the United States. And was the ruling document of the United States, and more importantly, they were supplant they were supplanted, they were replaced by a conspiracy, which became the Constitution. So, so my point is, isn't to say that conspiracies never exist. I just don't understand again why, if we look at the history of the word, right, and we understand that the term conspiracy theorist was kind of originally popularized to discredit people. I just don't understand why you would take on an identity designed to discredit you. I, I try not to do that. Your mind seeks order. Whether you want to see it or not, our basic biology is programmed to attempt at making sense of the world as best we're able. This is always what our brains are programmed to do. This is to say, given that you expect to find some kind of order in the universe, you will in fact find it. The person who adopts conspiracy theorists as part of their identity is oftentimes attempting to tell themselves a story so that the world makes sense to them. Interpreting this in the least charitable way, I observe without a doubt people who would rather always believe that they are out to get us rather than facing a far more mundane reality. 
that mundane reality being, you know, maybe you're not that interesting. So this is, again, there's, there's just a segment of people out there who would like, oh, well, I like to talk about conspiracies or I'm something of a conspiracy theorist. And this is really a reply to them is like, is to say, why, why do you make that part of your identity? I don't think that's a good, I, I don't think that's a good idea. If you want to question things, I would say try skepticism because what skepticism does is it allows you to hold your hone your mind and, it, and you can go even deeper than your run-of-the-mill conspiracy theorist will believe possible. The other thing is dealing, if you just deal in conspiracies, if everything is always some conspiracy to you, as the case may be, you will inevitably be relegated to the shadow, right? Because in part, some of like what conspiracy theorizing is relies on a on a large degree of ignorance because and 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 so you would and so somebody might reply to this with saying but like but like what about this story or what about that story like this is all true operation paperclip great example right that in the aftermath of world war ii if i if my memory serves in the aftermath of world war ii the united states uh sought out Nazi scientists and brought them into the United States, paying them a large pension so that they would dedicate their scientific research to the glory of the United States. That, that sounds crazy, but it's true. It happened. So it's not a conspiracy, is it? It might have conspiratorial elements, but it's a, it's a matter of fact. MK Ultra is a matter of fact. So again, this is a very, that, that's, that's my only point. And it's just something, it's something I like to hit. And this was kind of just a little piece that tried to hit at that. So if you're listening to this and you call yourself a conspiracy theorist, may I kindly enjoin you to try on a different identity for size. All right. And the piece de resistance, the last thing we're going to get into is my article, Friendly Pot Shots at Agorism, When Dogma Replaces Consistency. So, you know, I'm a skeptic. You know, that means I operate from a position of doubt. And you also know that I like to say inquiry before dogma. Now let's 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 handle something out of the way. Dogma for the purposes of our discussion is about something that you take as being true irrespective of physical evidence of of any evidence to the contrary. You understand? So there can be for you know and and a lot of a lot of religions rely on some form of dogma. It doesn't matter, for example, to the belief, you know, to, to the to the Catholic or the Christian, whether we have empirical proof that that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We believe that on faith. I don't have a problem with faith. I do have a problem with bad dogma. And I do think agorism suffers from some really bad dogma. I think the best kinds of dogma are actually dealing with matters of faith, with matters of the divine. So my position should not be understood as being anti-dogma. That takes a dogmatic stance, as the case may be, right? Skepticism is, the, is recognizing that I might be right or wrong about anything. I, I have that epistemic humility about myself. But given, given the world as it is, we still have to make actions. We still have to act in the world. And so that's where you know, I try to engage in sense-making. And sense-making is kind of the fusion of, let's say, skepticism, my, uh, you know, my economic knowledge, and just a bunch of other things. And when I try to make sense out of agorism, it just doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. So an article from the Agorist ne Nexus came to my attention. The article was written by Brandon Aragon. The title of the piece is Legitimizing a System of Slavery. What follows in that article, and of course I have all of this linked if this is of interest to you, but there are some key insights here into how a, see, it's not agorism per se that's at issue. It is the types of people who are attracted to the agorist philosophy. And, and, I, and again, understand that the last thing I am is a libertarian, that there are so many more things that go up to making my identity. Given that there are so many more things that are, that are, that are left up to, uh, hang on, because we are live, so I just got a message. It's better not. Oh, okay. This is relating to something else. James, I'm in the middle of something right now. Kidding. Of course. Um, always appreciate your replies, my friend. So 
let's uh, let me get my bearings. My apologies to anybody listening to the tape. So this dude wrote an article so caused, talking about justifying a, a system of slavery. What follows is an attempt at a tour de force to justify an agorist perspective vis-a-vis political action. So the agorist perspective vis-a-vis political action is that they don't believe in it. I've spoken about agorism before on my podcast, and I'm generally familiar with the works of Samuel Konkin. I'm not particularly interested in becoming a Konkinite or an agorist, so no, I'm not going to read everything the guy has written. While I do agree that operating outside of the system where possible is a good idea, I have always disagreed with the conflation agorists make between voting and morality, namely that they would view voting in a democratic society as an immoral act. In general, I find agorists or the Konkinites, as I, as I kind of disparagingly call it, refer to them to be very dogmatic people. Aragon, in his piece, is endeavoring to address, quote, most of the arguments for and against being political and some of the moral issues I see with getting involved in politics, end quote. So we're going to move through the piece, but just so we're clear, what this basically did was cause a mass triggering of anarchists. It causes a mass triggering of, or of, 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 some, of, some, of a certain subset of agorists who just can't possibly understand why somebody would disagree with them. So I want to talk, as I do a lot, about the idea of how you enter a frame. How do you enter a conversation? How do you enter a space? Right? How do you orient yourself to understand things? If you enter, if you start reading an article and you say, I'm going to disagree with this article, you're going to find things in there to disagree with. If you read an article, be like, hmm, I wonder what this guy's point is. I'm, you're going to find a point. And you're like, oh, you know what? I don't really agree with a lot of it, but maybe something he said was reasonable. That is the correct frame with which you should read my, my work, especially something, especially as something where I call it a pot shop, by the way, right? Where I'm kind of making, I'm making the point that I'm not being very technical or detailed in my analysis. I'm just sort of reacting post hoc to what I'm reading, which is basically what I did completely, which is basically completely what I did in, in part to do this article. Now, let's move through the piece. The arguments he presented them are entitled. These are the headings of his article. Joining the Nazis to change it from the inside. We're already off to a bad foot there. Spreading ideas of liberty, spreading ideas of liberty through politics. Rigged system. What about Ron Paul's campaigns? Creating a more efficient tyranny. Those are the five, those are the five segments. I will present Aragon's argument to the best of my ability and apply with a little pot shot, which is just a react. In the first section about, you know, and, and let's go back to what that meant. What was it again? It was, oh, yes, joining the Nazis to change it from the inside. In the first section, Aragon asks us to imagine if the American revolutionaries had tried to join with Great Britain to stop British tyranny. According to Aragon, quote, if the founding fathers joined the British to get King George to implement tax cuts, the revolutionary rebellion would have been quashed and no real change would have happened, even if it was temporary, end quote. He continues, quote, at the pinnacle of government power, they, governments, are always tyrannical. Though not called Nazis, almost every government salivates over the, over the power and control the Nazis had over their serfs. That's end quote. He concludes the section by saying, quote, voting only encourages the politicians and makes them believe that the people have sided with them or agreed with them or agreed to the game. All politics is counterintuitive to liberty. It's a pretty bold claim. That's me editorializing. He, of course, doesn't say that. But he does say all politics is counterintuitive to liberty. Running for any political seat in the U.S., there are filing fees. By filing, money is given voluntarily and directly to slavers, which many refer to as the state and in every case is immoral. Yeah, it's that dense. So I think that there's a correlation in the strengths in the strength of one's arguments and how quickly Godwin's law is invoked in order to make their point, which is to say, I don't think it's a good idea to start your article making a comparison to the Nazis, Mr. Aragon, Mr. Agoras Nexus. In fact, that kind of shows just how weak your argument is, right? Godwin's law is this uh, thing from the 90s. It's like basically any argument and invariably, you know, uh, ends in somebody calling somebody else Hitler, somebody calling somebody else a Nazi, right? And this guy basically comes out the gate swinging with this supposedly super consistent worldview, 
that says, what does it say? It says again that anybody, any all politics is a counterintuitive to liberty. So at no point in time should politics ever be engaged in. Of course, his, his, his historical example is anachronistic, right? Because if we look at the causality of history, we see that before there was an American revolution, there were attempts by the Mer what, who would become American revolutionaries at getting the, the, the king. And he, he uses the king, but of course, it was the parliament who controlled tax policy in the colonies. By getting the king, getting parliament to, to change their mind, to lower the tax burden on the colonies. That is actually... That is actually what, that is actually the historical case, right? So it started somewhere and it developed. So I, so just, just to start off there, I, I think that, I think that if you're going to start out swinging by talking about how, you know, basically America is like Nazis, it's, you're, you're not really doing a very good, you're not doing a service formally speaking for your cause. And just as a matter of, as a matter of practicality, I think, I think people can dismiss you because all you're doing is arguing like a leftist. Are there similarities? Now, now let's get technical, right? Are there similarities between the governmental structure of Nazi Germany and present-day United States? Sure, of course there is. If you look back, there's a huge influence of Germanic philosophy on the United States of America. Of course, entering into World War I was thought to be an issue because of the large population of German immigrants that existed in the U.S. So, of course, there's, there, of course there are similarities, right? And in that they are governments, you can also find similarities, similarities as well. Does it follow from this? Does it follow that there are some similarities we can point out to, to between Nazi Germany and the United States? Of course, I was also just talking about Operation Paperclip, right? So it's not even the case that there are like formal similarities and that there are, con you know, that there are things between government, but there is like the literal similarity of like, oh yeah, we're actually going to hire like Nazi scientists to come and work for us, work with us. So, you know, like, so again, that's, that's not my point here. Does it follow from that, from that? that running for mayor or representative is an immoral act in and of itself. I say no. And I say no because I don't think we should confuse ethics with morality, right? Morality is, I would argue, in, in many respects, deontological, whereas ethics are, are rules that we use to deal with morality, to deal with moral claims. And there is far too much of a conflation in agorist and agorism, but in, but in rationalist schools of thought in general between ethics and morality. Also, that means that anybody who does any good, as when we're gonna, this is gonna, this is going to affect the arguments later. You understand? Anybody who ever ran for office was doing something immoral, including somebody that an agorist might hold up as a good example of, of of a good person and a consistent libertarian. So Konkin tells those who would follow him to quote, hold on the virtue, hold on to the virtue of consistency. The refusal, the refusal to compromise created agorism, and that's like a, a short chop there. It's like the, the refusal to, what was it, to like, to, to fit in, da 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 that, that's what created actors. Consistency in thought, I do believe, is important. And I would agree with Konkin that any theory which does not describe reality is either useless or a deliberate attempt by intellectuals to defraud non-specialists. Now, this, that, that quote right there is actually how I triggered all the agorists. Because what I did with this entire piece, I'm going to give the sausage away for free here, or give the milk away for free, as the case may be. What I did was purposefully turn the tables on their professions of consistency. These guys thought that consistency is, is, what, is, is what matters the most. So I said, you know, so I said, okay, let's, let's actually be consistent with our ideas. Let's actually be consistent with our thoughts. So what Konkin said was any, any theory which does not describe reality is either useless or a deliberate attempt by intellectuals to defraud non-specialists. I do not believe agorism to actually accurately capture reality. So therefore, I think it is useless based on Konkin's words. I'm going to get into why and we can, you know, we can still have a conversation about it. I would say the virtue of consistency is in checking one's own thought for errors, not always trying to have a consistent viewpoint, right? By, by, by going through the hard work of making sure there are no errors in your reasoning and maintaining authenticity, that, even if your opinion changes in the face of evidence, that is being consistent. Not, as, as the guy Brandon does in the piece, asserting that, quote, not every government commits atrocities this bad, but every 
government is immoral. That's not being consistent. That's being dogmatic because you have no space. You have no space to take in empirical evidence from a statement like that. So moving on to the second, moving on to the second thing that he covers, spreading liberty, quote unquote, via politics. Here, Aragon presents the case that the LP should be abolished because it has been infiltrated by Republicans and because their polling is so low, it makes libertarianism look, look like a joke. For completely different reasons, I tend to agree with Aragon that ending the LP might be better off with liberty in the long run. And of course, as a little teaser for more on that, you should check out the interview I have with Mark Clare coming out on November the 29th. So there's a pretty tortured metaphor in this section about how NASA was once good for space travel, but now SpaceX is better. If I understand what the argument is correctly, it's to imply while there may have been a place for spreading liberty and government during the past, today it's better to use the internet. Ironic, because of course, in the immediately preceding section, right, we said basically if you, if you participate, but the, the very nature of you participating in politics is an immoral act. And now he's making a consequentialist case for the fact that, well, maybe at one point in time, it wasn't as moral. It wasn't as immoral, but now it is. You see, there's not, you have to, <laughs> and that's again, a, sig a signal of the dogma because you don't recognize this kind of dissonance in your own reasoning. Aragon also says, quote, putting on the political clown outfit puts libertarians on the same level as politicians who have been creating all the problems for years, end quote. So you see, a consistent libertarian to the Konkanite should never belittle themselves or stoop to engage in politics where the common man would see him, because that is the effect, by the way. Part of the reason why you would even think to participate in the political process is that's how people engage with political ideas. And even your ideology agorism, even your ideology of anti-politics is predicated on the idea of politics. That's why you call it anti-politics, because your ideology is founded in opposition to something. Hmm. My point is you can disconnect from politics without prophylizing against politics, and a movement so keen on developing the countermarket as they claim to be would do so well, would do well to not draw attention to themselves. So my point here is the degree to which these particular, these, this particular subset, these particular group of agorists will will be so anti-politics, all they ever talk about is politics, right? Now you could, you could actually levy, levy the claim at me as, as it was done before as saying like, well, well, you're so anti-dogma, you have a dogmatism of your own. And again, I feel like I addressed that at the beginning of this, but, but you, could level, you could level that criticism at me for sure. Especially if you're not gonna take my work in, you know, in, total, in totality, right? And you're not gonna listen to this more nuanced uh, go through, the, the, this nuanced explanation of, of of what I meant when I said it, what I meant by what I wrote, because there is always more to say. You can disconnect from politics without proselytizing against politics. I can speak English. So his next se se section had to do with being a, a rigged system and his argument, if I'm just going to be a little bit uncharitable, is because 14 out of 45 presidents were known Freemasons, three were known to be Skull and Bones members, and recent ones have attended Bohemian Grove, we are to understand there is no hope at winning politically. Of course, by winning politically, he's referring to the presidency. And of course, anybody who's talking about taking political power in the libertarian sphere that is focusing on the presidency is incorrect, right? They should not be taking, they, they shouldn't be taking that as, uh, as the way forward. Of course, it doesn't, but, but the presidency isn't, because the presidency is rigged, but the presidency isn't the only office in the land. And, you know, you're going to write a piece and you're going to kind of go about that, go through that. And then you're going to talk about Ron Paul, because that's, of course, what, what, what inevitably happens in any of these articles. So Aragon correctly points out that Ron Paul chosen to not to run for president as a third party candidate. And despite his magical nature, right, he could not win. It was argued that Ron Paul just had all the perfect things all the perfect things that made him the best messenger for liberty. And even he chose not to do it in the libertarian policy. And even he couldn't win as a consequence. Call you back. This is to be taken as proof that there is no path to political victory. Therefore we must become agorists. 
there was too much money spent on the Ron Paul campaign and not enough elsewhere. And in the aftermath of his loss, people were demoralized and he doesn't want this to happen again. So my response to this section is that if I had a nickel every time a libertarian invoked Ron Paul, I'd be a little upset because nobody takes coins anymore. To repeat a point above, if you pretend that the only political path is the presidency, as many libertarians would choose to do, it's very easy to make the case for, for removing yourself from politics entirely. Dogmatic schools of thought are particularly prone to creating these types of monoliths because their categories are by definition immovable. Therefore, America's Nazism is evil and you should never run for office because every office is just like running for the presidency. Now, again, maybe if I, if I were to push one of these people in these kinds of conversations, we would get to a point where um, we, we would get to a point where like, you know, they might, they might concede it one way or the other. We could come to some sort of, uh, we would come sort of some sort of understanding. So quoting directly from him, moving on to the next segment on creating a more efficient tyranny, arguing and trying to use their system, the political system, has only made people believe that the government has a right to take away those rights in the first place. Also, failures politically and legally are even worse because they can use previous court cases to justify taking away your rights and verdicts later on. The only way to win is with mass noncompliance. So that's, that's a statement, right? That's what he's saying we should do is have mass noncompliance. This is true with COVID-1984 today. We can all fight it out in the political arenas, waiting for state courts and going to the government, wasting resources and time arguing, or we can choose not to comply and give the government a real taste of fear. Here's the irony, of course, is the government doesn't care if you, whether or not you comply and it doesn't make them fear. You don't make them fearful by not complying, right? What you're doing is giving them an excuse to crack down the hammer. We are born into a system, people. This is my response. And pretending like we're disembodied rational spirits is so early scientific revolution. Any system of thought that does not incorporate an evolutionary or ontological lens cannot account for the rapid change of human that humanity faces due to technological advancement, and the agorists do not do so. So let me briefly say why I think that is the case, right? So what the agorist says is, is, is uh, let me just be very brief as to why I think that is. And of course, it's my conclusion, which my critics never address. It is precisely the actions taken by the government in this COVID-1984 system and the degree to which institutions like the press and government have been able to justify their actions that require the strictures of dogma to be questioned. My epistemological differences aside, there is good inside of the school of thought known as agorism and the method of counter-economics creating things like mutual aid networks, going off grid or transaction in cryptocurrencies are all awesome things that do help people achieve real freedom in their lifetime. What the last year has shown, however, is that we need to protect our flank. This is my case for politics here. And as the agorist would rightly point out, the government is the institution that can throw you in a cage for whatever reason they call the law. So my point to, to my point to people who aren't interested, because my point is here isn't to convince you to run for politics so much as it is to convince you to stop you know, making to stop thinking that having an anti-politics stance is going to help the cause of freedom or, or human liberty, because I don't think it does. There are countless low profile races that you can run for that can make a difference and cover the backs of people who do want to go out and create the agora that the agorists consist of. The sooner libertarians trade the dogmatism for the virtue of consistency, the brighter the future becomes. Again, that's like my little way of needling at these agorists in particular. Because I don't think they have a consistent worldview, because I think a consistent worldview requires you have epistemic humility and you re-examine your, um, re your presuppositions. I have been somebody who for a long time said running for office was pointless. You know, you can basically live wherever you want. It's all, it's all, it's all well and good. And I'm re-questioning those, re those assumptions based off, of the, based off of the direct evidence of the last couple of years. And one final note. To nail the final, to put the final note in the coffin of agorism, as we might, as as the case may be. One final thing that I want to put into this is just the idea to which I have had people react negatively to the "don't be poor" message, right? This idea of maximizing your wealth, power, and influence so that you can actually be somebody of authority. Anybody who reacts negatively negatively to that, who also calls himself an agorist, is likely somebody that you can that you can ignore. Because, of course, the most basic thing that you can do to make yourself better is to make yourself more sustainable. And, the, you know, and that, that includes increasing your wealth in a relative sense, because wealth, of course, is a relative concept. So if there is anybody out there, 
and I not and I know these people are out there because if you go and I have other articles linked to this, I'm actually not going to get into them because man, because it's it's really not worth it. Um, people, some people took umbrage with what I said and wrote a lot of words against it. I have addressed it, so if you want to look into that, if anybody wants to have me on a show to talk more about it, happy to do so. However, I think as a parting shot, as the final nail in the coffin, I would say, I, I heard this. I heard this from a friend of a friend, and and it was basically like agorism should be i know a guy right and and for whatever reason a lot of agorism tends to look down upon the idea of earning wealth in traditional ways or even the idea of taking on wealth unto yourself so that you can become a more powerful person i don't really have an issue with losing some of the labels that i've taken on as parts of my identity but it does bother me that people who i think could otherwise be allies would choose to turn me into an enemy and that's really what agorism seems to accomplish. And that is, by the way, what strict rational schools of thought that are inherently dogmatic accomplish as well. Because if you are not exactly what I need you to be, you have to you, you, you can't you, you can't sit with us. Right. You can't you can't be friends with us. I have to treat you as an enemy. That's not the way the world works. And so we need to cast aside defunct ideologies like this. That's what I have to say. If you like what you heard today, go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.